0: I could just ended right here. <laughs> what a, what a, I, I always appreciate Leah and Jake and Dan and, you know, Michelle, everyone that's on the worship team because I feel and I sense that it's like they're not up here performing. They're up here, you know, taking us by the hand into the throne room of God and we all worshiping together. So I, I appreciate our worship team. This time the kids can go. Uh, we have it. I think Miss Leah is going to be taking kid, the kids, and um, they'll have their worship. And so, anyhow, happy New Year to everybody. Does does um, does the midnight seem to be getting later and later each year? I don't know what why that, why that is, but I just feel like it was like two o'clock this morning was you know New Year's. So anyhow, um, yeah, we are getting into the. 40 days of prayer, and before I start, it, something occurred to me. Debbie Chapel asked me uh, earlier this week about a passage that I was going to use for this. Uh, I mean, obviously, we are talking about the Lord's Prayer is kicking off the 40 days of prayer, but um, so I gave her that passage because that's the main one, but I panicked because I'm looking through my notes, and I've got like 100 passages. So I need to give you guys a warning Uh, and a little insight into my jumbled head. Uh, The way, (laughs) about almost 10 years ago, I went through this um, Bible intensive for like a year and it revolutionized my way that I see see the Bible. And instead of it being um, passages or even books the Bible, it just opened my eyes that the Bible is to be read from cover to cover and to be used from cover to cover in everything we do and say. So I sometimes tend to see slices of Scripture because the, the story, there's a, um, a, a real narrative that goes through. There's a storyline that goes through from Genesis to Revelation that it's obviously written by one person, and that is, and that is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit... Pinned this magnificent story through almost 50 authors over 2000 years and we have what we now call God's Word and but the storyline is just if you want to understand God it's not just in one passage if you want to understand where we came from creation what's you know, wrong with the world it's not just in one passage It's the accumulation of all the passages together that tell us a story that it just blows you away. So um, we are talking about prayer as worship today. But to get there, I'm going to kind of take a a little detour, okay? So be patient with me. Um, So um, I want to first ask you, as we heard the announcement of the 40 days of prayer being kicked off, Can you recall your first sense, your first feeling from that? What did that generate in you? I know there's some because we have some real prayer warriors in this church. They're like, oh, yeah, great, another time to pray and see God work. And and I love that. We have some, like I said, really good prayer warriors. So I would ask our prayer warriors to use that passion and come alongside others. We even have a little 40-day group, you know, meet maybe even meet once a week for the next, what's 40 days, six, I don't know, my math's not good. So I should ask Rachel, the accountant here, what is 40 days, how many weeks is 40 days? So, okay, so it won't be a long commitment, that's my point. <laughs> so anyhow, so, if, um, so I really applaud that because we could all use mentors or someone that's really passionate to come alongside and walk us through the 40 Days of prayer. It's gonna be a really good one this year. But, oh, excuse me, i got to get my, pardon me. Um, How about those who had the, uh, um, so here's, excuse me real quick, I'm a little behind. So here is the the six weeks of prayer. So you can see we're going to be talking about prayer as worship, uh, prayer as kingdom partnership, prayer as petition, prayer as confession, spiritual warfare, and as an expression of hope. So those, it's going to be tied around the Lord's Prayer, what we affectionately call the Lord's Prayer. So, but we are, like I said, going to be doing um, prayer as worship. So who, who thought, well, I did it last year, okay, I'll do it again. Or who maybe had a yawn of apathy, who's like, prayer is not that big of a part of your walk with God. I mean, I'm not saying that's okay, but I want, I want to be honest with themselves. Um, or, and this is where I sometimes go, yeah, great, start off, and then it whimpers out at the end. So, um, who, so I just want you guys to pay attention to how you felt or when the first mention of prayer comes up, because prayer is one of the disciplines in life that's probably the, I think it's probably the least understood discipline and probably the hardest discipline to practice uh, because we have, uh, we're going to be talking about spir- you know, spiritual warfare as prayer too. But I want to go to a deeper place about prayer because I think prayer sometimes can disillusion us. Because how often have we had prayer requests and they're good prayer requests? They're praying for my sick mate or my sick child or, you know, I'm losing my job and I'm praying a good prayer and I'm honestly pleading before God and it doesn't get answered the way we want. You know, uh, we lose our spouse. We lose our child. You know, those are very real things that can disillusion us to God and our walk with God if we don't have a proper understanding a prayer, you know, and it sometimes makes it even worse when you hear the testimonies or proclamations of God answered my prayer and God is so good and He's so faithful. And I'm like, how come He's not faithful to me? How come I don't know that good God? Does He love me? You know, and it's and it gets to be a um, a an open door for Satan to have a heyday with us on the attributes of who God is. So I really want to talk today to those those of us who have gone, who have had those experiences that we don't understand. And instead of settling it with the truth of God, we just tuck it away, you know, and we we have this idea sometimes that well your God He's so good to you and he loves you I see how he's working but not so much in my life and I have um, honestly I've going through this I've shed tears in this preparation too because I can think of times that I asked God for something and it was a good request and God loves me and he's all-powerful but how come I didn't get that answer and I want to just start off um, by saying that God is not partial in His love. His love is the same for all of us. Because of Him, nothing to do with with us. Um, He is not unkind. He's not uncaring. He's a God that truly loves us. And, you know, everyone knows the shortest verse in scripture that says you know jesus wept you know that's the the quizzing kids and the you know sunday school kids they they that's the one bible verse that everybody remembers you know that jesus wept because it's so easy but do you know why jesus wept because it's the story of lazarus he was told three days prior to just like lazarus dying that and he was friends, Lazarus and Jesus were friends, and Lazarus was the brother of Mary and of Martha. And they said, Lazarus is sick, you need to come, master, quickly. And Jesus didn't go quickly, he took three days before he got there, and he wasn't but just a few miles away, actually. And Jesus, it says that um, you know, when he was going with his disciples, this is in the book of John, he says, uh, Lazarus is gonna die. You know, because the disciples are saying, come on, hurry up, we can go and we can be with them. And Jesus said, no, he's already passed. And it it even gives narrative too that John says that Jesus knew in his head that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he knew that. So when he gets there to the tomb and all the people are wailing and crying and he sees all this, it says, you know, Jesus wept. But he didn't weep because of Lazarus' death because he knew he was going to raise him. But it says that he looked around and he saw the wailing. He saw the pain of the people, basically. So Jesus wept because this wasn't the world that he meant to be. This was not the creation that he meant it to be. He didn't mean it to be that we were, you know, we were never created for to bear the burdens of death, to bear the burdens of suffering like, you know, like we do. So Jesus knows that. He knows that... Um, this world is very cruel. It's a very broken, dark place, and, and uh, we were not meant to bear the burdens that this world throws at us. So Jesus wept because of that, because he knows that um, he has better for us. But see, the good thing is, is he knows also what's coming for us too, So he, but he does experience our, our pain. So um, the first thing I want to do is just, because I do, this needs to be, uh, and also, by the way, my notes are only like 25 pages, so, and I read fast. Uh, I'm at the bottom of the first one already, so. just. <laughs> so, anyhow, um, what is prayer? Because sometimes I think we may, be, we may start out with the wrong idea of what prayer even is. You know, I think sometimes we, we think that um, uh, prayer is a duty. So we check our box, because I did my 15 minutes of prayer, and yeah, it's a commitment that you made to God, and you're happy that you checked your box. And But Jesus says, that's like a hypocrite. That's, you know, legalism. That's what the Pharisees do, because Jesus said, don't be like the Pharisees that are praying out loud for everyone to see. So sometimes that legalism can just be my way of feeling God's approval inside of me because I honored my 15 minutes of prayer. So that's not what real prayer is. And sometimes, and I'll get a little bit closer to home, sometimes prayer is, you know, we think prayer is that um, if I just say the right words, if I just use the right holy language and the right order, you know, and I demonstrate the strongest faith, that that's what prayer is and that God has to honor that because I use Bible words and I, used, uh, uh, I put them all in the right language. I didn't get the, the wrong Trinity you know, mixed up asking the Holy Spirit for, to heal this when it's supposed to be Jesus, but Jesus asked the Father, so we've got it all right, but, we, but it's like that's our prayer. You know, we think that's prayer. And God has to answer that because my faith is so strong. You know, and um, I have a feeling that this is one of the teachings, and it's, and it's sometimes called name it and claim it, if you've ever heard that phrase, name and claim it. If, if I name what, I'm, what I want God to do, and I claim it with the greatest of faith, God's gonna answer it. But unfortunately, our focus is more on ourselves than it is on God. You know, because we're doing this based on my faith. Is my faith big enough? Because then someone will say, and they mean well, they mean right, but they'll say, well, your faith maybe wasn't strong enough. You know, and, they're, and you're just putting more burden on yourself. Um, and this is um, one of the many reasons, but this is one of the reasons why you see people walk away from the faith. They walk away from the church because I did everything right. God didn't answer my prayer. He took my wife. He took my child, you know, and I just can't get over it. God's supposed to be a God of love. God's supposed to be powerful that he could stop all this, you know. So it's a real hard thing to get over. And like I said, um, Satan uses that to divide us from God's love and to take us away from it because we have the wrong idea of what prayer is. So... Um, what, what is prayer? And I think sometimes, and this is, I want you guys to um, don't think about your neighbor or your family member. Think about yourself. So just analyze yourself. This is a real, I want this to be real between you and God because uh, we are talking about um, prayer as worship in which I do believe that prayer is the highest form of worship because it's between you and God, a personal inner encounter with you and God. So... Um, I'd like for us to see it this way this morning. But really, our prayer, our approach to prayer does reveal our walk with God. It reveals um, how we see God, what we think God is, and what He uh, will do for us if we ask. And um, it's, uh, it, it can sometimes, we can get into a wrong type of prayer because um, we think God is just there for us to ask to do this, do that, take this away, protect us from that. But uh, my um, prayer, my definition of prayer, and this is one I, and it's simple, uh, and I'm sure scholars could do a much better job with this, but here's how I see prayer. Prayer is the privileged access that God gives us to Himself, so that we can conform our hearts, our wills, and our world to His heart, His will, and His kingdom. You know, because we're like I said, we want to change God. We're trying to ask God to do something that we think He's not going to do. So that's my my the depth of my prayer. But really, uh, I think it's to um, change us. You know, and I get some of that because, you know, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and I don't know if many people have read C.S. Lewis, he's a scholar, a uh, previous atheist who died in 1963, and he's from England, and he, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, and he was really good friends with J.R.R. R. Tolkien, and actually, you know, Tolkien is the one that uh, encouraged C.S. Lewis to become a Christian because they had all these questions and all, and C.S. Lewis, would always hear that, well, Jesus is a good teacher. So that's what people would say that Jesus was. And one of the, um, you know, we've heard the phrase uh, liar and lunatic or Lord. That that was from C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis had to realize that who is Jesus. He had to deal with who Jesus was because he said, Jesus never called himself a good teacher. The, the Pharisees did, and people today, we call Jesus a good teacher. And, but you know, C.S. Lewis said, no, he, 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 the things he said about himself, he says either Jesus is a liar, because he's a well-documented historical figure, right? So we know Jesus existed. We know the writings, we know what other people said about Jesus, that's not even in scripture. But Jesus is either a liar, because of the claims that he made, or he's a lunatic because no one would make such claims like that, or he is, in fact, Lord. So when, when a C.S. Lewis came to that understanding, it revolutionized his life. It changed his life. You know, but he has a real good saying, and this was um, I, the first time I heard this was in the movie Shadowlands. You guys ever seen the movie? It's a really good movie about him and his wife, what his wife went through. But he had a quote in there, and I found the quote the other day because it's such a good quote and it's about prayer. And he says, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleep. He says, it doesn't change God, it changes me. You know, because we're so often trying to change God with our prayers to get him to just move his hand, reconsider, do this, do that. But really, C.S. Lewis has it dead on. It's not to change God's hand, to change God's way. It's to change me. It's to change my will. So the only only real commandment that we have that Jesus gave us in Scripture was what we call the Lord's Prayer, and it's found in in Matthew 6. Um, And it was the prayer that he was asked his disciples, his disciples asked him, teach us to pray. You know, they saw John the Baptist teaching his, you know, disciples to pray. And they wanted um, Jesus to teach him, you know, teach them how to pray. So he says, Master, teach us how to pray. So then Jesus goes into, he starts saying, you know, don't pray in public. Don't do like the hypocrites do because they're only doing it for, for their own glory. You know, then he says, don't, um, he says, pray in, you know, private. He says, "Then uh, don't pray like the Gentiles do, be, with a, in a repetition." Um, he says, "To um, he says, your father knows what your needs are," which I think is an interesting thing. So, if he's saying that, he's talking to people that are praying for themselves, praying for their needs, praying lofty prayers, public prayers, and and all this. So he says, "Your father knows what you need." So he says, "Pray." pray like this and it's a prayer that we all know I mean we prayed it less today in school but back when I was young we prayed this in school we prayed this on Friday night football night we prayed that we so this is the thing that everybody prays so I want us to pray this prayer in I mean you know recite this prayer this is in the King James Version so this is the version that we all basically know and learn by so let's recite what we call the Lord's Prayer okay Our Father, which art in heaven, you just hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. You just give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this is a prayer that we prayed so much, we don't even pay attention, I think, sometimes to what we're praying. You know, but um, it strikes me that there's really only one line in there that's praying for our physical needs. You know, one line is to give us this day our daily bread. But what's the first three, the first statements of it. I mean, this is Jesus telling us something um, to do that is less about meet my needs and more about being in the presence of the Father. And that's why that I love worship so much this morning because that's exactly... I felt like we were doing the first three lines here of the Lord's Prayer because it was just taking us into the temple. Um, you know, but it's certainly... Uh, and, I, and, and I think most people have heard this phrase before because it's been said around here quite a bit and all, but it's called seeking God's hand, you know, and we should seek God's face, but we are so easily seeking God's hand. That's what we do in prayer. That's easy for us to do because we know our our needs. Uh, we think we know our needs better than God does, or we think we know the answer to our needs better than God. So, hey, God, let me give you a few ways to, um, answer this request because it really is um, the right thing, you know. But um, when we look at prayer as worship, I think sometimes too is I mean, have you guys heard the the, the phrase about uh, "I'll thank God in all things"? Or I mean, all things work together for good. So you know, so we we think that my that what that looks like is, is that even when I'm having a really bad day, i got to thank God. Even when something really bad happened to me, I thank God. You know, so we do this in a way that it's almost like we're just thanking God, but in my heart, I'm not thankful. That's the last thing I am is thankful of that. And I think worship, prayer and worship is the same way, and it can be the same way if we don't understand it, because we say, well, all right, I'll, I'll worship. I'll do my first worship to get out of the way, but let me get to what's really on my heart, and that's what my needs are or what my friend's needs are because we can pray for other people too. You know, so we, we get into that and, uh, and we've missed the most important part. And, you know, if you go all through Scripture, you see very little prayers or models of prayers or examples of prayers that people pray in for themselves. You see a lot of example of prayers that look like worship. You know, so I want to bring out one that's really important. And David, you know, he's the... Um, David is the one that we, if you read his psalms, you just see psalms are really, I think, are like, I, th- I think his psalms, the way that I see them sometimes, are like memoirs of his in- encounters with God, and his dialogues with God. Now, Saul, I mean, David here, you know, he has a lot of psalms written because uh, if you guys know the story real quick, Samuel anointed David to be the next king, the next king of Israel while Saul was still king. So, because God was very dissatisfied with Saul because he was doing a lot of wrong things and being disobedient, so so then um, God instructs Samuel to to disanoint David because he wanted to disanoint someone after his own heart. So David has already been anointed king here because it was very early uh, in his relationship with David and Saul, but Saul was jealous Saul was jealous of David because everyone was always celebrating. They'd say things like, Saul has killed as thousands and David his ten thousands and Saul wanted that glory and things like that. So then Saul was chasing David, his army. So Saul was committed to David's death with an army. Okay, so that's a pretty big problem, isn't it? I don't think we have any problems that are quite that big, you know, that are that I have the most powerful man in the land that has an army trying to kill me, I'd I'd be having a bad day, you know? So this is where David is. I just want to get an idea, you know, for you guys to have an idea where David is. So this is one of his prayers that he um, prays, or this is what he writes down after his prayer. So this is where he is coming from. He says, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation, "'and whom shall I fear?' The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So look, fear and afraid are the first two lines. So obviously Paul is talking about being afraid because this is, he's experienced fear, you know, but in his fear, God just draws him close to him and shows himself, shows David who he is. So he says, when evildoers Saul, he'll assail me to eat up my flesh You know, my adversaries and foes, Saul and his army, uh, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, I will be confident. How's David being so confident? How is he being so confident that he knows that he's got um, the king of Israel and his army chasing him and killing him, and he says, um they stumble and fall. I didn't even do anything. He said, they just stumble and fall. That's what he's saying here. So here is the next phrase, and I want you to really catch this, because this verse, verse 4, gives us a model and instruction on um, why he is this way. The one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after... Wait, wait. Don't go to the next line, which I know that you guys already have. The the one thing I would ask for is to slay Saul's army. The one thing I would ask for is to at least protect me or put some distance between me and Saul. That It's never close again. Those are the kind of things I would ask, right? And those are reasonable requests. David says, the one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Where is that coming from? That, that's not his head speaking, is it? That's his heart speaking. So what's going on here? David has already settled the thing in his head somehow to the point that he's willing to say, hey, what I want, I don't, my, my desires had nothing to do with Saul. My desires had nothing to do with the you know, protection of my life or deliverance. My desire is to be in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This is a man of war saying this. You know, this is like, man, you know, man's man here saying this, and he wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And I just look at that, and I and it just changed. It, it's it's like a whole, it's like a whole paradigm shift for. The, you know, this the relationship that David has with God and the one I think he would have, the one I would have with God in that situation, is completely different. So it's something that we can look at and just say, wow, he's, uh, he's, he has learned something from hardships that only hardships can teach us. You know, so I think this is really, um, this is a model approach in prayer to what it looks like when we pray In a worship Um, Verse 5 he says He will hide me in his shelter So this is what God will do And he's not even asking He will hide me in his shelter In the day of trouble He will conceal me under the cover of his tent He will lift me high upon a rock And now my head shall be lifted up Above my enemies all around me And I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So he's doing this because God is... The Father has revealed himself in such a private, personal way that when we say that David is a man after God's own heart, I think takes on a different meaning. takes on a newer meaning, a little bit more of an intimate meeting that he has between him and David. Um, And then here is, I think, the the instruction for us, admonition for us, and I'll take it as as an admonition for me. Uh, But he says, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, and be gracious to me, and just answer me. So then he says, so now David is saying, God, God, you know, you have said, seek my face. And David says, my heart you know, you know, David says in his heart, he says, your face, Lord, do I seek? So, see, David understood something that makes, that shows how to have courage in the face of danger, that shows how to um, live in a way that um, looks like a man after God's own heart because he's seen God's heart. I don't think he was born with God's own heart. I think it was a developed thing. I think it was a learned thing, which is when we understand that, it's possible for all of us. We can all be men and women after God's own heart. So when he, he says, when, the God, when God says to him, don't ask me for anything, he says, just seek, just seek my face. You know, and then David says, your face, Lord, I do seek. So, um, now, hear me. Because I'm not saying that that's this should be the the level of our prayer that we seek nothing more than God's face. We seek His hand too, right? We have we week three is you know you know petition, so we can't stop the 40 days of prayer in the first week. So we have to go to get. So we're going to be talking about other other parts of prayer too. That's God's uh, way too, because He does want us to bring all all of our needs to Him too. But the um, there's two truths, I think, and sometimes they're, they can be basic truths because we may hear them a lot. We hear them and we sometimes it's like a Sunday school lesson sometimes. Uh, but there's two truths that you see in this prayer that, that David understood. And I think it's two attributes of God that we can't overemphasize. And I think it's, the, it's uh, truths that when we understand and when we grasp and we truly believe it, prayer as worship is as natural as the air that we breathe. It's not a duty. It's not a, a precursor to my real prayer. It's the prayer that we want to pray and we just stay in because it's where God meets us. You know, so when we understand that, when we understand these two truths, um, it revolutionizes us, and I, and the understanding is would be. Sorry, I should have been a little late on that one. The, when we embrace God's sovereignty, and when we embrace God's love for us, those two things, when we understand that, and truly get our arms around, it's a. It, a powerhouse has been born in us. You know, it's truly, we then become um, people that walk with God in supernatural ways, you know, in ways that don't make sense to the world because, you know, the world's always judging us by what they think and see, the physical stuff, but what's really going on in us is our heart. God's got a hold of our heart. So, um, God being the sovereign creator of all things, this is Paul talking in Colossians 1. So he says, um, for by him, so he's talking about Jesus now, and Jesus is the physical um, uh, embodiment of God. He's the the one of the three uh, parts of God that we call the the, uh, Trinity. So uh, it says, Paul is saying, for by him all things were created. That's all things. In heaven and on earth, not just down here. You know, Jesus is the creator of all things. Visible and just invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, says all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him... All things hold you know, hold together, so that's a pretty. Is there any question about? It? Is there anything outside of that we know that's not created by Jesus? Is there anything outside that's not created through Him? And I think one of the most important parts of this verse is all things were created for Him, because if we understand that even my he, Him creating me and my life and. The people that he's brought into my world and the gifts that he gives us, it's for him. It's not for, you know, he's done, he has you know, created everything for him. So um, when we look at things that God's not answering the way um, we think they should be, this is a really important truth for us to, to remember. So another one, here's another slice of um, the authority of God that is um, unquestionable, and that's the story of Job. So everyone, does, I'll, I'll give you just a cliff notes version of Job. So real, real quick, Job, Job the, the book of Job starts out with, um, for some reason, we don't know why, Satan has a presence in the uh, throne room of God. And God has a dialogue with Satan. He says, hey, have you considered my man Job? And Satan says, oh, he's only being loyal to you because you've blessed him with wealth and power and prestige and all that. God says, no, no, he's not. He says, take away everything. Take away all of his family and his wealth. And and see if he's going to curse me. So God gives Satan the um, freedom to go and what we would call wreck Job's life. So Satan took away his, you know, all this happened in like one day. His kids are gone, his wealth is gone, all of his livestock is stolen, his house I mean, it's just like devastation. And Job doesn't curse God. You know, so Satan goes back and, you know, God says, so, so what do you think of Job? Satan says, well, if you took his health away, you would, he would curse you. God says, all right, go ahead. You know, take his health, don't take his life. Satan goes and just fills Job with disease and painful boils. And he, I mean, if you can just imagine people that have um, shingles, how painful it is that you hear the people that have shingles. It's just, when it's, it's, it's excruciating, you can't even put clothes on. So um, Job, his wife, is just says, just curse God and get it over with. Get your misery done. His friends are saying, you must have done something to God. What did you do? You must have disobeyed him. Job says, I haven't done anything. So through all of this... Um, Job finally, now Job is having dialogue with God. So what did Job do that was wrong? Because he gets corrected by God. Job says, he doesn't curse God, but he says, I demand that you give me an answer as to why you did this. That's pretty big of Job, wasn't it? To make demands of God like like that. So then... um, so then, this is so. This is picking up here in the end of Job when, it's, when the Lord answers him. Out of it says, and the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, "Who is this that darkens the counsels by words without knowledge?" And I love this line, Dress like a man, you know, dress you know, dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me." He says, "Where were you when I laid the, the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding." Who determines its measurements? Surely you know, is what God's saying to Job. He says, or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So in this encounter, Job gets really, really small now, and doesn't God get really, really big? I mean, it, now we've got the proper proportion of God and Job, as it should be scripturally. You know, so this is, this is all pointing to his, um, his authority is unquestionable. His authority is sovereign. Now, what else do we, can we go to see the, um, that speaks to God's authority? And I think it's uh, in... Romans, or I'm sorry, a revelation uh, in the throne room. And John, real quick, just a quick background on John. John is the last living, you know, last living apostle, okay? He has been exiled on the island of Patmos, and Patmos is like a, a penal, col- in, in a penal col- in a colony. So he's really, it's, he's having a hard, you know, he's isolated from the church, isolated from all of his Christian brothers. And God decides to reveal things to come. God decides to reveal the throne room, his glory. So God takes John up in a vision, and he sees this sight. He sees this throne room, which is just pointing to the glory of God. So now you put the glory and the sovereignty of God. You know, we're getting a picture of who God is now, right? So here, here, I just took a few verses out. It says, around... The throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, And just around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy... Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our God, in power, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So can you picture anything close to this? Because if you can picture anything close to this, it's stunning You know, we're seeing the throne room of heaven described to us, and I'm sure when we see it, it's going to be like this. He's showing, not only is he showing the throne room, he's showing God in a sovereign, powerful position. He's showing the most powerful created beings worshiping him and praising him. That's a, can we just picture this for a second? Because it's really amazing to, to, to see this throne room this way. So hold on to that thought too, because we're going to come back on Job and this too, Real, and I promise it won't be long. Um, so that's the first truth, is can we, can we embrace the authority, the sovereignty, the glory of God? Because if we can, this is what it's going to look like. You know, and this is straight from Scripture, God showing us who He is uh, and revealing to us who, who He is. Because God, if you look all through Scripture, He's not hiding. He's just in Scripture waiting for you to discover all the nuggets of who God is. It's, it's all there, and for what we, for, from what we know from physical Scripture in, in this physical world is enough for us, and we will know even more when that day comes that we will be with him forever. The second truth that goes along with this, because this has got to go hand in hand. The second truth, and us that meet together on Thursday night, we talk about this a lot, so they'll, they'll, you know, chuckle when we talk about this today, but the second thing is, God loves us. Now, I'm not talking about just the love that we may define love as, you know, because sometimes we put physical attributes, our physical understanding and just attributes onto God, you know, and it's so much more. You know, so God, and this is a, I don't know if I made this word up, but it's, it's it is like an unrockable love. So I hope that, I don't think that's a word because my spell check kept kicking it out. So, so anyhow, so in Romans, this is Paul talking now. In Romans, we have the best description of God's love for us. He says, uh, in Romans 8, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us to settle that problem that we have that's in the world that we talked about? So he, God sets... Um, sacrificed his son for us out of love how will he how will he not also uh, with him graciously give us all things so he's making an argument for god loves us what more why is everything that we're afraid of or trying to change or whatever or trying to turn his hand our way what how is that prayer any better than this verse right here who shall bring any th- charge against God's elect? It is God who uh, justifies. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? For I am sure that neither life, nor angels, nor, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation. And may I add, even yourself. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we're starting our prayers from these truths, don't, don't we have all of a sudden have freedom from I got to get my request in, I got to do this, got to do that? All of a sudden, I'm starting from the point of God is sovereign, He is full of glory, the most powerful beings outside of God are worshiping Him. He says, and then He loves me that nothing can separate me from the love of God. So, how it's just. Um, it can be a paradigm shift, like I said before, of who God, I mean, of what your prayer life looks like and your walk with God looks like, because we're trying to get to how can we worship God in prayer. So you see, this is something that, um, now you kind of see how David could have the courage uh, in the face of certain destruction without God's hand covering him. You know David understood that, so he he knew if he was anointed already an anointed king. Guess what's going to happen? David's going to be king, so it doesn't matter what Saul is going to try to do. And David understood that. Now let's go to back to um, Job. So after God puts Job in his place, Job's Job's confession is golden. He says, Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Important. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? So he's repeating back to God what he called called of him. He said, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. So he's confessing. I said something I had no idea. this is interesting. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Now, isn't that an interesting word to use, wonderful, when he just went through losing everything, including his health? The only thing that was left was his painful body, his wife, and three or four friends were giving him bad counsel. That's all he had left. So, but he says, he says, I did not understand these things that are too wonderful for me. He says, hear and speak, and I will question you and make it known to me. So he's, again, answering God's, um, you know, questions here. But he says, this is real important. He says, I heard you by the hearing of the ear. So he's known about God because, he's, you know, people talk about him, and it's, it was already in his mind. So he says, I knew God because I heard about you, you know. But he says, but now my eyes have seen you. So it went from hearing and a head knowledge of God to now my eyes have seen you, and now I can understand who you are because it's through experience. And, you know, um, that can be the thing too wonderful, that when we get to the point of looking at what God maybe took us through to get us to see a vision of who he is, an understanding of who he is, that now my eyes have seen you, and I say it's wonderful. You know, now all of a sudden, the, th- the answers to prayers I didn't get, the, the ways that you took me through the, through the you know, ringer, and it was painful, Job has more right to say this than any of us, you know, for what he's been through. And he says it's too wonderful. So he, he now just has that connection with God. So now we go back to now think about when David said, God said, seek my face. Now we're starting to see what when we are in his presence, seeking his face, doing the thing that we've been called to do, is so much uh, better for me, more wonderful for me, than him giving me his hand. So he says, then he finishes it up, says therefore I despise myself and repent in dust in his ashes. So that's where um, God wants us to be is in that, uh, that kneeling position that, which I'm even mean of your heart of repenting and in submission to who he is because then we can experience God in ways that, and you've talked to people too, have you guys seen people that have been through a really hard time, you know, and they've been that testimony to what it looks like when people go through hard times and they are at the mercy of God. You know, sometimes that happens for other people to see our response to how, um, to how great God is, even in the midst of my, what you may call, trials and sufferings. So now um, we get to God's response to Job in this. So it says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Okay, so we all know we, that, he, that he did restore the fortunes of Job, but when did he restore them? It says when he prayed for his friends, which I, 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 I always miss that. I never saw that. So we, God restored the fortunes of Job, and it says it was like, way more than what he took away, you know. He lived a long life, uh, many more blessings, and by the way, he didn't curse God, so he was still a testimony of God and God's man to Satan, that how um, Satan's a liar. Uh, but he says when he had, he had restored the fortunes of Job, when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave him twice as much as he had, and it says, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. So, you know, and Jesus said, too, back, back to where, in Matthew 6, in the, um, the uh, model prayer of the Lord, uh, the Lord's Prayer, a, a, few, a few verses past that, again, you know, Jesus is um, not dismissing or discounting physical needs, because he says, He says, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? He says, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these other things will be added to you. So that's what he's saying. So so just again, we're getting taught that seeking God's face, seeking his kingdom, seeking him first is the way that he created us, the way that he created all things.